0: Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Luke today, not Leviticus. I know that's usually the expectation when I come up here. Uh, However, I thought I would be in Luke today. So if you're a visitor, you dodged a bullet. (laughs) On Good Friday, our church gathered for the Tenebrae service. It's the beloved service among the elders, and I think amongst many of you, where we pull passages from Scripture to meditate on as we experience Good Friday together. During that tenebrae service, the lights aren't turned on, we have some candles, and as the service progresses, it gets darker and darker, and we share reflections of the cross, and that day, that night in which Jesus' life was given as a ransom. And I came to the thief on the cross as my reflection, and the elders we have this understanding that we're going to speak about five to seven minutes on this passage so that all of us can share something and have scripture readings and enjoy song. It's, it's not a proper sermon time. And I've come to this passage throughout most of my life, and this passage in Luke, Luke go ahead and go to 23, verse 32, Luke 23:32. this passage is usually used as a proof text. Well, what's the proof text? If you're a nerd or if you've been to Bible college or youth group long enough, you might know what that means. A proof text is a passage in scripture where you make a proof, you make an argument from. And during the Tenebrae service, I approach this not trying to argue someone in theology, but to, to meditate on it and think about it devotionally and think about how it serves Luke's gospel I was so blessed, and then I had like five or seven minutes, and that was it. So we're going to be revisiting it today, but maybe you have a background of using this as a proof text as well. There is a denomination within Christendom that's pretty healthy, though we're in disagreement with them. They would say that baptism is required for salvation. This is the Christian church, and I've preached at Christian churches. I know Christian church pastors that love the Lord, and that preach the gospel, I believe, faithfully. However, they add into salvation the need to be baptized. So a lot of people come to this thief in the cross, and they ask, well, well when was he baptized? I don't think he was. Now, there's, there's theological arguments that can be made, I imagine, um, but that's not my fancy, and I'm not going to make a defense for that church. Instead, I'm going to say, Junior, when you were baptized today... You are communicating what Christ has already done, brother. Amen. So you don't have to worry about how wet you got. My oldest, when I baptized her, she had a dry spot on her head. Didn't really mean she's not saved. She's saved. Uh, it, it, it's not dependent on that. Some other people. This is one that really. I'm not going to get into the theological intricacies, but I want to. Um, there, are, there is a movement called the Free Grace Movement. Uh, Back in the 1980s, uh, mostly in Dallas, the Dallas Seminary, there were some New Testament scholars that said, in order for one to become a Christian, they simply had to receive Christ as Savior, but they don't need to submit to Him as Lord. So, if you have a mental a mental understanding that only one can come through Christ, they're okay. But but bending the knee to Him in obedience is not necessary. Now, someone in that camp would say, well, yeah, it's natural, it's good for sanctification, that we would grow in obedience, that we would grow in holiness. But look at the thief on the cross. What evidences of grace were in his life? What what repentance do we see here? He couldn't do anything. He didn't get baptized. He didn't go on a missions trip. He didn't do evangelism. He didn't memorize any scripture possibly. He didn't perform in church membership. However, at our church we believe that true saving faith produces works. It's a faith that is not alone. It is a faith that's not divorced of the spirit working within you. We usually come to our bibles and we look at individuals or stories and we, and we like to say that's when they got saved. This person's a Christian. This person's not a Christian. And we like to be very dogmatic when sometimes the authors are simply saying, place your faith in Jesus. Know their story. You might identify somewhat with their story, but all faith is to be placed in God. And because we sometimes like to be very dogmatic and are a matter of fact, we get a little scared. I sometimes still get scared was this audience one that claimed to Christ? Is that, is that someone that is saved? When did the disciples get saved? I don't know. Took plenty of classes. <laughs> so I don't want us to get caught up in the weeds. Instead, I want us to ask this question What is the salvation that Jesus is offering? Not what is the bare minimum, but what is necessary, or what's necessary for salvation. But what is the salvation that Christ is offering here? Because I think the majority of the people in this text miss it. They don't understand what he's offering. They don't understand what he is accomplishing. So let's go ahead and go to verse 32 two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the school, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. So we find Luke gives us a setting for Jesus' intercession here. Jesus has been tried as guilty. He has been illegally kidnapped and tried, and beaten, humiliated, shamed, deserted. We find several groups of people using Jesus as entertainment. Either it's the crowd looking, enjoying yet another show. Here's our entertainment today. Another execution. We're going to see the Roman guards flex their muscle We're going to see puny, insignificant individuals die a gruesome death. And then we will go home and we will enjoy dinner. We have religious elite here who are hurling insults at the Lord. This is their day of victory. This is the day where Jesus now can no longer torment them. They ask him all his theological questions... They put tests before him. Jesus answers them with wisdom and with a better understanding of scripture. And then heals people on no-no days. So now here they are enjoying and gloating that this rabbi, makeshift rabbi from nowhere, has met his end. And the Roman guards play with him like a beat-up dog in that background Jesus prays for them he is sentenced to the worst death imaginable it's known for its pain it's known for its embarrassment it's a horror he's to be killed not just by himself but among criminals The evidences have been brought forward about who Jesus is. And though it's been said time and time again, I I find no guilt in this man, this man is innocent. The people cry for blood. So, to his left and his right, he dies not an honorable death, but among thieves, among criminals. he's placed on an area of land that is called the Skull, Golgotha. Luke doesn't mention Golgotha in his account. I think it's because of his audience here. That's Aramaic. Luke is really gifted in Greek, so he just stays on the Greek track and doesn't confuse people there. Jesus' feet, his cross, is planted in a place with the meaning Skull. Death is all around him. Hatred and evil. Is all around them. I hate being ridiculed. It is not comfortable to to be embarrassed. I hate being embarrassed. I I, I hate it. I, I like to be comfortable. I like to be thought of. Well, I do not like being reviled. To think that when someone sees my, my face, they grit their teeth. They, they have an energy when they talk about me, and maybe not even to me. The idea of swallowing that seems inhumane. Above Jesus' head is a big sign mocking him. King of the Jews. And in that moment, he prays. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is a fulfillment of the suffering servant Isaiah speaks about in Isaiah 53, verse 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession For the transgressors, Jesus understood he is that lamb to be presented before God for his enemies. And I want you to think for a moment, he is swallowed up fully with an audience of enemies. Those that love him are gone. You see previously in this chapter, just a few verses up, you hear of women that are mourning. These are hired mourners. These are women that are paid to announce someone is dying today. This is, this is a cult, it's culturally acceptable. Death should be mourned. And so what you do is you would throw a couple of shekels some individuals way and they would make, it would be a public announcement, today someone is dying. Today the, the end of one's life has come. It was very appropriate in their day for this to happen. These, this is a hired hand offering hired tears. So I want us to look at some of these individuals in verse, let's go to verse 34, section B. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So, so in this scene, now Jesus' clothes are going to be removed. This usually happened at the end of crucifixion. This was the last major shame. As everyone watches, you are now deroped. And this is when the crowd would laugh. What salvation is Jesus offering here? This is an ugly, ugly picture. When you think about salvation, when you describe salvation to others around you, what do you think about? Verse 35, And the people stood by, watching by the rulers. They scoff, and they say, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So the rulers look, and they ask Jesus the question, Are you the Christ of God? Are you God's chosen one? Haven't you saved so many people? Can't you save yourself? And beloved, people will do that to your Jesus today. People will say, well, is is God all controlling? How come babies die? Isn't God all loving and and good? Why do people starve to death? If the Lord really loves you, why are you going through this trial? These people are hungry for salvation. They are starving for salvation, but their idea of salvation avoids death. Their salvation tiptoes around it. But the salvation that Christ offers goes through it. So, Junior, when you came up out of the water, that was a symbol that Jesus has conquered death. You, you in a very real way, picture to us the gospel that you were buried with Christ in death. And raised to newness of life. People want a puny salvation that can't conquer death. Brother, you have a salvation that has gone through it. These individuals wanted a king. Kings come and kings go. These individuals want a religious scholar. Scholars come and scholars go. Some people want just the casual life and entertainment. Boredom comes. And what's interesting, fates. They mock. Save yourself. You've saved so many people. And the irony here is he is saving a people unto himself in that moment. You might be asking God in your trial, what on earth are you doing? the spirit we don't know what he's doing moment by moment he could be refining you he can be strengthening your faith he can be encouraging you his salvation does not avoid death going further verse 36 the soldiers mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying if you are the king of the Jews save yourself their their insult isn't as informed as the religious rulers they might have not been following very closely what the Lord did in his earthly ministry but they here are interested in power if you are a king, if you are great we know what kings do We know the power of a king. When a king speaks, we submit fully to his command for our own sake. And the king is concerned about his own power, authority, and well-being. If a king is not protected, a nation is not protected. If a king can't take care of his own courts, the nation is doomed. So Jesus looks like a complete fool to them. You're a king and you've been judged as a criminal and you're not even given a royal death. And we will strip you naked and we will laugh and we will mock you because we have no fear whatsoever of who you are. Like we said, the sign above him marks that he is king of the Jews. And then one of the criminals begins to rail at him. And his insult really gets under my skin. And before I even get to that, I want to say, Matthew and Mark both record that both criminals attacked Jesus. Both criminals mocked him. Both of them harassed him while he was on the cross. One continues going forward. His insult in verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In verse 39, it's like he he throws away Jesus even having to prove himself to be king. I don't know if he has an eye view of Jesus or if he's just yelling as loud as he can so he can hear him. I, I I don't know what their interaction is like physically. As he engages Jesus, he's not even saying, prove to me you're a king. It's, oh, so you're a king. You're a king. You're a savior. You're a sovereign. Okay, I'm not going to even attack that right now. Because when I look around here, I see you're dying. So, so if, if, okay, fine, you're a king. Save yourself and save me. Now, to be honest, if I was on that cross, I would be self-centered and I would say, save me. He is focused on himself. He is angry at this Messiah. And he digs at him. I'll lighten the load for you. You don't have to prove everything. Just, let's just get to the brass tacks of it. Save yourself and save me. Then we come to the second thief in verse 40. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Something happened in the event that day. Both of these men were, I believe, justly tried. Both of their actions required that their lives be taken. He has witnessed the special treatment Jesus has received. And he has seen how Christ is the example of a righteous, suffering servant. How with every insult, he does not engage in hate. How he remains in prayer to God. How he gives instruction to the disciple he loves and his mother. how he asks for the forgiveness of his enemy. He has seen how Jesus takes a punch. He has seen how Jesus takes the whip. He has seen how Jesus takes the nails. This criminal knows he is guilty. Beloved, that's evidence of a believer. When you stop comparing with others, when you stop asking for evidences on your own terms... And when you feel the sense of dread because of what you have committed and because of who you are before. He asked this man, do you not fear God? I imagine this man fears death. I imagine this man hates that he is underneath everyone's gaze and that he's being judged and ashamed a public curse. But this man, this second thief, asked, do you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? They're not innocent lambs. These are guilty men. He says, we indeed justly deserve this. They are receiving the reward of their deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So what's the theology of this second criminal? The second criminal has great theology. He's not some person that just saw this nice guy and said, hey, I'm going to just tell him you're swell and then I'm going to get into heaven. Now this this man's spiritual resume is pretty blank. It's pretty blank. But he feels the weight of his sin. He fears a holy God and he knows and publicly declares on his death beam he has done nothing wrong. He is sinless. Beloved, that's the only salvation that you can rest on. Not that you are right in everything, not that you are powerful, not that you are successful. Not that you were very wise in your steps. The only salvation that offers hope is one that places our sin on the spotless lamb. His perfection, his sinless life is what secures our only hope. So, This man says to Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm going to get a little nerdy here. I don't think this man's theology was well informed in our understanding of a heaven or a new heavens, new earth, and and a paradise. I, I think that when he speaks, I think he is saying, Jesus, when you return, when your kingdom is inaugurated in full, remember me. Remember my face. Remember my name. Call upon me. What faith. What, what a beautiful cry. Out of all these individuals, this is the only one that called Jesus by name. All the others talk about his title. All the others poke and jab at the power this supposed Christ, this supposed chosen king has. This is the only individual to look at our Savior and say, Jesus, remember me. I think about how that blessed Jesus on that cross being talked about and insulted, and made fun of, and physically, not just emotionally, tortured. One knows my name. One seeks fellowship with me. In all of this, there is beautiful hope. There is beautiful love. Also, this thief on the cross... He is one of the few people to declare Jesus innocent. In this chapter, Jesus is called innocent six times. Pilate and Herod, they're like, he's innocent, but it's not really going to stop us from what the people are demanding. This man declares he is innocent. A beautiful thing for him to lift up. Remember that when people criticize Christ when they put God on trial before you, he is innocent. We are unwise. We can't make sense of every situation. But he is without sin. Then Jesus gives a beautiful reply in verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is, this is what I really want you to hear today. Jesus did not look at this thief on the cross and say, you got it right, now get off your cross. That's not the ultimate salvation. Beloved, some of you are going through serious, heavy trials. And Some of you are heartbroken, disappointed, angry, confused. This man is breathing his last breath and is given paradise. But this salvation walks through death. Little ones who still are trying to put together the gospel... Believing in Jesus doesn't mean you will live a long life. Believing in Jesus doesn't mean you will have a lot of friends. Believing in Jesus doesn't promise you a spouse. And, and some of these things are easy to get. To get a, a good job, it takes some work, but you can do it. To get married, you know, it takes hopefully some discernment. You can do it. To have good health, um, it can be done. We have wise people that help us help us make right decisions. But to escape death, to conquer sin and death, only Christ can do that. These Roman guards have had their entertainment, and they're happy. These religious rulers, they have sentenced an innocent person to death and condemn him as guilty in in their own framework. They're happy. The crowd, they got their five minutes of entertainment before bed. They're happy. The first thief got his last vindictive jab and got to call someone else worse than him. Someone else less truthful than him. But this man, he asked that he would be remembered. And Jesus gives him the most amazing answer. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. During the tenebrae service, as I mentioned, this is the only time Jesus answers something so pointed and so direct in this way. In this way, today is the day of salvation for you, brother. Today is the day you will enter paradise. I will remember you, and we will be joined together in true peace. Beloved, today is the day of salvation. The Lord may not remove the thorn from your side. You may still wrestle and moan in this life, but beloved... Sin and death has been swallowed up in Christ's victory. And it's for that we place our hope and our joy. Let's bow in prayer. True and living God, I pray that you would be with our hearts today. Father, we are a needy people. We come before you with prayer requests because this life has challenges. Our homes, Father, experience various trials and suffering. But Lord, we thank you that you have prepared a place for us. We pray that our hope in Christ would be our ultimate joy. We pray that, Father, your gospel would forever be preached here. And that in very practical ways, it would bring spiritual drink to a dry soul. I thank you so much for the obedience of Junior today, of him being a picture of your resurrection. I pray, Father God, that this message, that the display of the gospel we've seen in this baptism would motivate others to trust in your salvation. We ask this all in your name. Amen.